I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. And you're listening to Deep Cut. I want to find your earring in the sink. On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss a director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. Hello, 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 and welcome to our official last episode of the season and our second episode in our journey into the filmography of Lana and Lily Wachowski. So last week, we zeroed in on their most famous movie, The Matrix, and I think we had a really fruitful discussion about their take on a sci-fi action movie and why their movie elevates itself above the pack. For today, I wanted to go back to Bound, which was their feature debut. I really love Bound. I saw it for the first time in college on my laptop, as as I saw most movies <laughs> um, <laughs> for the first time. And I was immediately super drawn into what I thought at the time, and which turned out to be true, what was such a small budget. The Wachowskis really pulled it in order to make something feel so cinematic and so grand and so large from what was a, a really small budget. Even though this is their debut feature, it really showed so much of what both Lana and Lily were interested in as directors and storytellers and how they would later approach a more mainstream Hollywood audience um, when creating the Matrix movies. Yeah. What did you guys think about Bound? I know, Eli, this was your second watch and Ben, this was your first watch. Um, Yeah, I'm very curious to, to see what you guys think about this movie. I have to say that it's insane that these are the first two films from the Wachowskis. Honestly, unparalleled. Like, I don't know of anyone who's able to, out of the gate, make such successful genre films with so much mastery of the genre as well as the technical aspects of the genres. If The Matrix is like genre-defining science fiction, then Bound is like a really, really good entry in a kind of thriller genre. It's not necessarily breaking new ground. It has its unique aspects, but it is very well made and honestly astounding as a first feature from the both of them. It was really interesting thinking about it also because of Wilson mentioning the Coen brothers last week as the first mm. directors we followed this season and then with the Wachowskis as the directors we're ending with because both of these pair of siblings have somewhat similar first features in terms of like tackling genre and kind of putting their own spin on it. And I think the Wachowskis might have the Coens beat in that respect. Because Blood Simple is kind of like a send-up of the genre and kind of inverting things. And Bound is more of a generic entry in that genre. But I think Bound's highs in its genre are so high compared to like Blood Simple, which I think is maybe less successful in terms of just being an entertaining picture. It has its merits, but I definitely enjoyed Bound more. I agree, Ben. This is my second time watching the movie, as Wilson noted. I actually watched it earlier this year, and I agree. It's an immensely enjoyable noir thriller, just as The Matrix is an immensely enjoyable sci-fi action blockbuster. The Wachowskis bring something special in what they're doing, I suppose, socio-politically with the main characters, right? 
Mm-hmm. Last week, we talked a lot about how Neo and his journey and the people around him can be a metaphor for a lot of different ideas about identity and how that relates to the context that we find ourselves in. With Bound, I am astounded, one, by how tight this script is. Everything in it is intentional and comes back, but also that the thematic argument about Corky and Violet, the two main characters who fall in love, is embedded in the plot. It is a key plot point that the male characters around them cannot imagine them as being lovers. And the way that they work what they want to talk about thematically into the actual plot is pretty astounding to me. It's a banger. It's a really fun watch. It is a banger. Before we dive into our deeper discussion about the movie, I'll do a quick plot summary and also a little bit of context for the movie because it is their first feature. And I think it was very interesting to see how they got this project off the ground. So a brief description of Bound. Our main characters are Corky, played by Gina Gershon, and Violet, played by Jennifer Tilly. Corky has recently been released from prison and is hired to paint and fix up a house in this apartment building. Next door to Corky's apartment lives Violet and Caesar. Caesar is involved in the mob and Violet is his girlfriend who also is a sex worker for many other members of the mob. Has been trapped in that relationship with Caesar. Yes, yes, has been trapped in the relationship with Caesar and also in the whole mob community. What happens is when they meet, there's an instant sexual and romantic connection that they have with each other. And through hanging out more and Violet's desire to be with Corky and also to leave Caesar and the whole business behind her, They decide to steal $2 million from Caesar when he's doing uh, like a money exchange with other people in the mob. Shit goes ugly really quick. (laughs) Half of the chunk of the film is the mess that is started by Corky and Violet trying to steal this money and a lot of hijinks ensue. This movie was Lana and Lily's feature directorial debut, but before that, they wrote this movie called Assassins. They had an agent for it, and it was optioned by Dino De Laurentiis, who is this very prolific Italian-American film producer. He optioned it from them and then eventually sold it. And at the time, both Lana and Lily were working as carpenters and were basically building their parents' home. And when he sold the script to Assassins, it was sort of their like big break. They thought they just made it. They didn't (laughs) need to make anything else in the future because they got a check for (laughs) $250,000 for the rights to Assassins. Jealous. But Dino, who turned that $250,000 into a $2.1 million deal with Warner Brothers, I think it was. They sort of felt a little shunted by him, but he did come back to them quite soon after asking Lana and Lily what they were going to do next. And they had the script for Bound written at the time and they described it to him and then left the part where both Corky and Violet are women to the end. But when Dino heard that, he immediately signed on, as opposed to a few other production companies that sort of passed on it because it was a queer love story at the center of this very genre flick. 
they did end up making the movie thanks to Dino De Laurentiis for a pretty like small budget for a genre film. It was a six million dollar budget. Yeah, I think that's most of the context that I, I want to share because I think it's very interesting how American directors get their first start because most of the time they are tied to other producers allowing them the opportunity to make that first feature whereas a lot of other foreign directors i i, I would say finance it themselves or or club together a few different producers but a lot of what i read or heard from interviews from lana and lily about this movie was that there was a lot of like back and forth pushing between the the directors and dino so I think that is very telling of, of the American film industry back then and also still now. Let's dig into this movie. I feel like there are so many incredible things about this movie. And I think the most important thing that we should talk about and the thing that we should start out with is Corky and Violet's relationship because it sort of is the instigator of all the action that happens in this movie and it's also the core yeah. relationship that audiences are rooting for. The direction of action and how the seduction plays out in the opening act of the movie is so crucial to highlighting that sexual and romantic bond that they have from the get-go. The fact that people, including Corky, keep on underestimating Violet is sort of a crucial aspect to her character that becomes more important towards the, the film's ending. The Wachowskis throughout this movie find really inventive ways to stage and shoot things. Right off the bat, their first encounter in the elevator happens behind Caesar's back, literally, out of his view. And I think that's so clever. I think that that is a way in which blocking furthers what I was saying about the thematic argument and how it's embedded in the plot. And it all happens in glances between Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon. One of the really special things about Bound is that it treats the relationship and in particular the seduction that happens in the first half of the movie in a way that is exciting and allows for chemistry between the actors but is not leering. One of the key turning points in the plot comes when Corky asks Violet, are you just setting me up, essentially? And I think that's a question that popped into my head pretty quickly the first time I viewed the movie. Mm -hmm. And because of the genre, I think you know not to trust the femme fatale, in this case, Violet, yeah. who is outside the narrative range of the main character, in this case, Corky. But... Violet asks Corky, and by extension the audience, to trust her. And it turns out to be right. And the ending affirms the bond ha -ha, <laughs> that these two have. Also, just while I'm here, quickly, gotta say that whenever I see Gina Gershon's face, I can't help but, like, do what she does with her lips with my lips. Like, pouty? <laughs> like, pout them out? Yeah. It, it, it just amuses me. There's this photo that sometimes pops up of her on Twitter where she's essentially making duck lips. And every time I see it, I go... Hmm. and make the duck lips. <laughs> <laughs> I think when I was first watching the movie, I felt like the relationship was a little convenient. But I understand where it's coming from and what it, its function is in the movie in that it creates a sort of tension for Corky because she is unsure of whether to trust Violet at all. And I think, I mean, that's a very classic noir kind of trope where the femme fatale is maybe only in it for herself mm -hmm. and is going to betray somebody at any point in time and that somebody could be on your side, could be on the other side, you're not very sure. And partially the film is about being on Corky's side and 
being unsure about the allegiance of Violet. I think what kind of loses me a little bit on a relationship is that for that to really work, you really need to be on Corky's side so that the distrust is able to kind of build within the viewer as well. But because the film doesn't really care to stick to Corky's side in terms of the narrative range of this thing, I never really doubted so hard whether Violet was going to betray Corky. Maybe it's just me being too trusting on my end, but feeling like Violet would probably pull through in the way that it kind of framed the relationship. But maybe it was an expectation that this film would choose to upend those tropes. So I'm not really saying this as criticism, it's just kind of an observation. So I think I kind of felt like I was lacking that tension of, is Violet going to betray Corky? And I kind of wish there was a bit more of that. And when I say that, the beginning felt a convenience, like the attraction is so quick and then suddenly they're in love. And I felt like, yes, it's a bit of a genre construction to like just say, okay, these two are in love and they're going to run away and do a crime together. <laughs> but I am definitely willing to accept it and go along for the ride because the ride in this film is extremely, extremely good. Yeah, I agree that the Wachowskis do not seem to prioritize the tension or doubt between Violet and Corky's relationship. And the tension comes from what's going to happen to them and to their unit as a couple. Mm. I think it's just a matter of priorities mm -hmm. that the directors have here. Mm -hmm. And just because that's what the genre typically would instill in you doubtfully, that's the purpose of that scene that has Corky ask, can I trust you? Mm. I think because the genre convention is so strong, my first time through the movie, I didn't fully trust Violet after that point but as the second half goes on and you see the actions that Violet takes you can pretty well trust her and find tension in the question of are they going to get away with it like what's Caesar going to do I agree with Eli in that on the second watch I knew for sure that Violet was not lying and was true to her profession of love to Corky. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of it is also in Tilly's performance because she has she plays it with such conviction that I think even as someone who is doubtful, I think there's a, such an honesty in the way that she acts on what she wants. I'm thinking about that scene in Corky's truck right after they get interrupted in Violet's apartment by Caesar. She comes and she says she wants to apologize and and Corky thinks that she's apologizing for coming on to her, but she actually is apologizing for not finishing the encounter that they had earlier, which mm -hmm. I think by that moment, I was already like, okay, yes, you're very clear in, in, in what you want. And like Eli said, I think the second half of the film, I was very easily turned my vision towards them completing this heist successfully and mm -hmm. making away with all that money and and living a happy life. Lana said in like a talk she gave about Bound, she saw the movie Silence of the Lambs and was so like shaken up because it was such a, like a good genre film. <laughs> but she was in like the bathroom at like recovering from watching Silence of the Lambs and she was trying so hard to think about one film in in a genre world where an LGBTQ character won. And she said she couldn't think of one. So I think the, the only thing that she decided after that was that she was going to make that genre film where uh, a queer character won in the end. Hmm. It's very affirming. To go back to what Ben said a moment ago, definitely the major convenience of the movie is that the lust and seduction that they have for each other immediately equals love and trust. Hmm. But 
I agree with what you're saying, Wilson, that it is very affirming to see Corky and Violet win. It's yeah. a happy ending. And yeah. that feels really good and it doesn't feel like it necessarily shatters the genre of it all. And I think the attraction between the two sort of remind me of like the unquestioning attraction between Neo and Trinity that <laughs> occurs oh, yeah. throughout the Matrix trilogy. Like I watched Reloaded this week. I know Eli watched Reloaded and Revolutions this week. <laughs> yeah, on last week's episode, I said I wasn't sure if I was going to watch the sequels in a timely <laughs> manner. And then in the subsequent three days, I watched both movies. Wow. <laughs> Reloaded rules. It's great. <laughs> it's awesome. I think it is the most fun Matrix movie. I think it's the most out there Matrix movie as well. But what I was trying to say is that there's no doubting and there's no questioning of Neo and Trinity's bond and connection with they have with each other. It's just mm. like sort of like otherworldly, right? It's just like, oh, you, you just have to buy it to continue along the storyline of this movie. And I think it is very similar with Bound. I think Bound actually does Matrix better in that you actually do spend time with the two of them more. Like with the two of them together in the same scene more often than you do with Neo and Trinity. So yeah. even if you might not be sold on the relationship, like for me, not being sold on the relationship necessarily as love, but at least there is time to see the attraction and chemistry of the actors. Yes. Which helps to sell it because sometimes that's all you need. You need two beautiful people looking at each other lovingly and it's good enough. Yeah, and of all the conveniences to have to digest in order to go through a movie, true love is, you know, it's not the worst of them to have to believe. No, not at all. <laughs> it's nice. A thought that occurred to me only after I finished watching the movie for the first time was that the second half could, if it were directed differently, feel like a stage play. Mm. It mainly happens in one location on one set, all the action is very contained and spring-loaded, and it's all tightly written, and anything that pops up earlier comes back later in a consequential way, and it keeps on ratcheting up tension. It's like a chamber piece. But the Wachowskis are so good at placing the camera in unique and creative places. Mm -hmm. They make the room feel huge, I think, with the height that they put the camera at, and they focus on these crazy details in ways that I don't fully understand, like moments where they trace a phone line as a call is going through the wires. Mm. Yeah. All these loop-de-loops that the wire is laid out in. Or they'll focus on the details of a gun. Or they'll follow someone's eyes and do POV editing. Also worth mentioning that their editor, Zach Steinberg, who also edited The Matrix, is a key collaborator for them because finding that rhythm with these creative camera placements is very important for them to land. I guess what I'm saying with this is that the second half of the movie could feel very stagey and staid, but the Wachowskis make it feel so expansive and tense and creative. Mm -hmm. It's so full of innovation while also tracking the characters and not getting in the way of the performances. I personally love chamber pieces, but I, yeah, I agree. The Wachowsis are able to bring in a lot of energy to what is happening. Yes. I think we'll get into this a bit later, but I think the second half is kind of similar to The Matrix in that if The Matrix is like has the oh. final act of like many, many kinds of action sequences, 
Bound's second half is really like just thrill sequence after thrill sequence after thrill sequence that are kind of configured in different ways with different characters at the center of the thrill sequence. I find that to be extremely masterful. So I think it's not just about the way that they frame those sequences, but also about the way that the premise of those sequences are constructed to not just be repetitions of thrills, but rather variations of thrills, which makes it very, very inviting and like engaging to watch. That's absolutely right, Ben. And the other thing that they are so good at is that the second halves of both movies are payoff, payoff, payoff. Mm. You've heard earlier that at some point, Neo won't need to dodge bullets, and then he's stopping them in midair with his hand. You know that the walls are thin, and then Caesar hears the phone ringing from the other side of the wall, so he knows to go looking for Corky. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's the same kind of thing. Again, we've tied it to how Christopher Nolan wrote Inception, <laughs> where in the first half of the movie, you're getting all these concepts explained so that when the second half rolls around, you are able to understand things and appreciate I heard about this earlier. I knew this concept. Here's how it's being flipped on its head and used here. Those payoffs in a way that is used to up the stakes as they happen here is immensely satisfying. Eli, earlier you were talking about how it could be a chamber piece because it's set in one location. But I think, yeah, you were right in saying that the camera work in it's really sort of like elevates into another plane where things don't feel dry and things don't feel repetitive at all. One scene that sort of sets off this this whole chain reaction was that <laughs> what, uh, the one where Gino and Johnny, the big crime family, comes to collect the money from Caesar after Caesar realizes that the money's already missing. And Caesar suspects that Johnny is the one who took the money. In that scene, there are like five characters in, in that one room. And I think I only remember one shot being like a wide master shot of everyone in the room. Everything else was either a one shot or a two shot with a moving camera. The shots never repeated themselves. Like even if they were having a conversation, very rarely would you cut back to the same setup. And I think a lot of that, at least hearing the interviews with the Wachowskis was because so much of the time they were waiting to get this movie made. Like so, like a lot of time was in limbo because they were trying to get the rice cast and they were trying to secure all the funding. So they would just sit in Dino De Laurentiis's like office that he set up for them, and they would just storyboard all day. After getting the green light to make the movie, their initial cinematographer pulled out because he thought that they couldn't do it with the budget that they had. Not with that attitude. So then they found Bill Pope, who was sort of like a a cheap man who knew. Cheap cheap people um, and he got the movie that they wanted to make with all the fun sweeping camera moves that they wanted the other way in which the framing is an extension of the writing here is that the marvelous thing about that scene that wilson's describing is that we know what johnny knows we know what caesar knows we know what violet knows And we are able to track individually where everyone's head is and pull tension out of the experience from that discrepancy in the hierarchy of knowledge of who knows what Mm. and who knows the wrong thing and who knows the right thing and who knows nothing. And we just watch the tension build until it pops. I feel like the Wachowskis must have had a corkboard with writ thread as they wrote this film. <laughs> when they were looking at the elements that they were adding into this, like even something as simple as the fact that this building has this old janky ass elevator yeah. kind of has a payoff 
in the film. Yeah. yeah. Because it's what Violet uses when she's running away from Caesar. There are just so many parts of this where it feels so carefully considered to kind of create opportunities for payoffs and yes. inversions. And honestly, it's maybe one of the best written thrillers because there's, there's no fat here. Like everything is there for a reason. Yeah, I really want to dig into kind of the way that the script tees up its series of thrills. And once it starts the heist the movie doesn't stop until it's over. Mm -hmm. And I think it is so well written in the way that it reconfigures its players and its key props to kind of create new situations without having to really spend that much more money. So this really kicks off after Violet proposes the heist to Corky and then Corky says, I think I know how to do this. And then she starts explaining it and then we immediately start going into the actual execution of the heist. So it's a very standard trope of the heist movie where someone's explaining the plan of the heist and we're watching it being executed with the voiceover. For a large part of that, Everything goes according to plan until the point in which you realize the critical error in the planning is that they wrongly estimate what Caesar is going to do. (laughs) They think he's going to run, but Caesar's character is that he doesn't like to run. He likes to stand his ground. And that is the final kind of piece of the plan. It seems like it might actually go there. And then it completely blows the plan wide open. And it becomes a series of different kinds of sequences where different people are at the center of it. And I found it very interesting that once Caesar pushes back against the plan and decides to stand his ground and find a different way of getting out of the mess that he's in, even though he believes all the things that he's been set up to believe that he thinks that Johnny stole the money, it kind of becomes a little bit of Caesar's heist because he needs to figure out how he's going to get out of a situation that has elements which are not actually true, but at least true to him. Mm-hmm. And so then it becomes a, an escape sequence where, okay, how does Caesar get into this? And you're kind of more aligned with him, mm-hmm. not on his side, but aligned with him. Yeah. In like, okay, how is Caesar going to get out of this? Because now we move from a plan and it being executed to now I know the problem, but I don't know the plan in Caesar's head. So it becomes a completely different kind of sequence where mm. there is the pleasure of finding out how Caesar is going to solve this. And Caesar's actually a very smart antagonist. He's very smart at trying to figure a way to weasel out of this. Yeah. That itself is also a very entertaining, engaging watch. Great observation, Ben. And sort of his descent into madness is also very funny to see. Yeah. I'm thinking about when he goes to Johnny's apartment and starts tearing it apart and he says the line Mm. think like johnny that really reminded me of the shining for a little bit and then he turns (laughs) around to face the camera and he has a little bit of that similar face on it (laughs) and i was like oh i think this is this might be a callback but joe pantoliano i I was really scared most of the time because he's such a wild card he's really cunning but he's also very unpredictable Mm. and i think him here as caesar and also him in the matrix as cypher they're both really like standout-ish characters in in the world that that they inhabit Mm. to sort of create issues for our main characters. He really walks the line in his performances between hey, whoa, and hey, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) He's kind of like a character actor, but he makes it very kind of authentic within this kind of story world, right? Yeah. Yeah. He isn't playing a mobster. He is understanding the perspective of a mobster. And like, Mm. even though you're not necessarily on his side, but you can feel his pain. And like, even though partially you're also laughing at him, because he doesn't know the full story, especially when he first gets fucked by the two women, or rather, (laughs) 
not fucked, but okay. <laughs> when he first gets betrayed with two women. <laughs> but even though you know he doesn't have the right information, you feel his stress and you kind of empathize with his stress in that situation. Yeah, and so moving from that first moment that he gets betrayed, the film goes through, I think, like, I don't know, five, six different kinds of thrill sequences yes. where sometimes Violet is in the middle of it and sometimes Caesar is in the middle of it, kind of controlling the pace of the story or like being the kind of agent of plot propulsion, right? Where they at different times step up to kind of control the situation. I think this is where I kind of wished... Corky had more of agency within these sequences because she kind of gets stuck behind a wall and then I don't know what's going on there. Yeah. I kind of wish I knew what she was thinking because there are moments where you see her on the phone or like she hears stuff from the other side of the wall and she's worried, but then you kind of lose her too much and then it becomes more of just Caesar and Violet in the room without commentary from Corky's side or like maybe even what is Corky doing to kind of fix the situation? She's kind of waiting for her turn, which is a bit of a shame, Mm -hmm. but it might be too much to juggle three different characters trying to solve the problem. Yeah, I see what you mean. Hey, do you think that it's on purpose that Caesar's name sounds a little bit like Seize Her? I don't know. It could be. Yeah, I saw one of my friends mention that as well in, in like a letterbox review. I don't know. I wouldn't put it past them, but I, I, <laughs> if, if it's not confirmed, I, <laughs> I, I would be also careful. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that is on purpose that Johnny's name is Johnny? <laughs> <laughs> Gino's name is Gino. Gino. <laughs> Corky's name is Corky. Yeah, see, Corky's name is how I know there's a cork board thread when they were writing this. Carlos' uh... <laughs> name is It's Lit. <laughs> you were talking about details earlier, Eli, yeah. that they focus on. And I think one of the kind of standout sequences is after Caesar's solution is to freaking kill Gino, Johnny, and the other guy. <laughs> Uh, other guy whose name I don't know. After he gets mad at Johnny for rashly telling Shelly. <laughs> yeah. It is, first of all, unexpected that he goes this direction to solve his problem. Yes. yes. And so that already in itself is a bit of a thrill sequence because you're like, holy shit, this is where we're going. And then now we're moving into a hide the bodies thrill sequence, which has these cops coming up. And then he has to hide the bodies as quickly as he can, cover the bloodstains, deal with the bullet in the picture frame on the wall. And they show all these elements of him kind of putting all these things in place. And then after that, showing the cops coming in, brushing past all the elements and how does he get out of it? Like the moment that I was like, what the hell? Like he is just letting this guy use his bathroom after dumping three bodies in there. I was like, wait a minute. How does that make any sense? Won't this guy see it? I was like, is there a second bathroom? I don't know. But then obviously he has that confidence that maybe he can get out of it because he believes he has hidden the bodies well enough to at least let this guy take a piss and get out without noticing them. And then you have the other cop who's like walking around past all the elements he's moved around stepping on the bloodstained rug walking past that picture frame Mm -hmm. and it's such a great kind of Hitchcockian kind of thrill sequence where you know where the bomb is and it might go off but it doesn't and so it's just kind of thrill sequence after thrill sequence that kind of build on each other and seamlessly kind of connect it's a really good ride I really love how they sort of split up the movie like first half is set up and then you have a full 40 50 minute chunk where they're sort of just not letting off any steam they're just like they 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 just keep on chugging along through this whole situation because they really carefully planned out this build-up in that they they don't have any more breathing room left in the back half of the movie but i think it really works but i'm trying to think of other like thriller movies that really just have 
this first half, second half, strong contrast between the two. I can go back to Blood Simple as a comparison because Blood Simple kind of has, I mean, the kind of third act of Blood Simple is about a woman who is kind of out of her depth, right? Trying to get out of a situation that she doesn't really understand. Here, I mean, obviously, the women know the situation they're in and they're trying to get out of it with their cunning and their improvisation. And Blood Simple also kind of has that setup. But I mean, the thing about Bound is just that Bound has like doubled the thrill sequences of like, other thrillers Mm -hmm. it's like packed the brim with thrill sequences like you could have one of these in like a 90 minute debut feature and people will think yeah that's a pretty good feature but here it's like let's do 10 (laughs) and it's our debut feature as well yeah it was sort of like no question when they asked if they could do a bigger budget when De Laurentiis and other producers saw that they pulled Bound off. Mm. Because they were first-time feature directors, I think Dino kept a really close eye on the two, and he visited them on set the first couple of days, and then saw, as Lana described her directing style, as they direct like their hair is on fire. Uh, Once Dino saw that... (laughs) He was just like, okay, they know what they're doing. I'm just going to leave the movie to them. (laughs) Wait, hair on fire doesn't sound like a good thing. (laughs) I think it's because they look so crazy enough that you just just have to believe them. (laughs) You just have to trust them. Oh, I want I want to talk about the sex scenes and also the the fact that it was really because this movie was ninety six and they had a choreographer or for the sex scenes and I guess in today's industry you would call this person an intimacy coordinator. It was a feminist writer and sex educator named Susie Bright who was friends with Lana and Lily, who they asked to to come onto set and actually played a role in the film as a, a woman that Corky was trying to seduce at, at a lesbian bar at the start of the movie. Oh, yeah, I think she was very crucial in in the depiction of the of the sex scenes, and I think they also made it a really strong point to not just show cunnilingus in a lesbian sex scene but also penetration which i think was not seen prior to this in lesbian cinema i think it was not seen as much the really grand sex scene in this movie happens in corky's apartment and it's filmed in one long take because it's a sex scene usually it's supposed to be a closed set but because this was like a crane shot where they had to move walls they actually had more crew come in to execute the shot this long one where the camera tracks in from a wide shot of them two on the bed and then swings around to their feet and then to the front of their bodies it's a really masterful shot and i think it is really worth all the time and i guess effort taken into the, the execution because it feels so fluid the lighting in that scene is pretty impeccable yeah it really is and i also really love this one detail in this movie that i think they also included they did a lot of this in the matrix but um whenever the camera would sweep or whenever like some sweeping movement is made like some walking they they would always add in a a sweeping sound effect to it Mm. to sort of amplify the camera move like that even happens like in the beginning of the film where corky enters the apartment and then it the camera sort of tracks through some paint buckets and you hear that swishing sound in the background Mm. and i think a lot of this is credit to their sound director dane davis who did a lot of the the sound effects in this film dane davis is a great like film guy name (laughs) dane davis honestly i could take any of these sequences and like in the second half and like 
You could write an essay about any of them. <laughs> I know. It's really incredible. I was talking about the killing of Gino and all that. And then Gino, like when he shoots Gino, there's that crazy overhead shot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in slow motion. And I was like, yeah, this is it's like precursor to the Matrix. Like this is them like yeah. messing around, trying some mm. the most interesting way of doing it. But I don't think it's actual slow motion. It, it might be slightly slow mode, but I think they lower him down. They like, they have like wires yes. and they lower him down while the camera sort of tilts on top, like cur- curves on top of them, of, of, of Gino when he falls. Yes. I think there's some sort of rig that lowers him down. You don't see his feet. That much, I think, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Ask yourself, why not just do slow motion, right? Like, why do this? <laughs> why make your life difficult? Because this looks fucking cool. Yeah, it looks cool, but I mean, like, on a functional basis, it's kind of a way to heighten kind of the choices that Caesar makes in this moment, right? Yes. It's kind of like a world slows down kind of thing, but then yeah. in not using slow motion, it shows that he's kind of out of step with the actual movement of the world because slow motion yeah. is a kind of a meta move on, on the edit, right? It's kind of an audience perception, but then here it feels more like a Caesar's perception of the events unfolding. And to add to that, the shot right after the one that you mentioned is sort of an out-of-focus shot of Caesar's face and the wall behind him and the bullet going through the framed picture on the wall and then it racks focus to Caesar regaining clarity because mm. in that rack there's a, a there's a little like shake of the camera as well that felt a little out of place but in character it's it's just a very well considered film in terms of like the way that it decides to cover its scenes and like the shots it decides to use it's flashy with a lot of substance you know what i mean like it's using these tools to not just do something in a novel way, but also to kind of amplify the story it's telling or like to amplify the moment it's showing. It's honestly like, I mean, you could use this to teach film probably, like teach <laughs> how to like use shots and like use camera movement. Oh, 100%. There's also this quality about the direction that it is very stylized and impressive, but it is not distracting. Mm, that's also very true. Like, I do think about how good directors the Wachowskis are, and I think this is a first feature, but I am still dialed in to the characters and performances and the tension of what's going on. I think that partially comes from how strong the script is, and I think it partially comes from how good the performances are. Mm. Mm. When doing research on the movie, I read that, well, there's a whole lot of casting shenanigans. So first of all, Tilly was initially cast as Corky because oh. she was always playing like the sexy femme fatale and wanted to play against type. Huh. So she was cast alongside another actress. But Dino De Laurentiis, sorry, I keep on saying his name, but it's also a very nice sounding name. <laughs> yeah. But Dino De Laurentiis saw Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls, which is one of my favorite movies I've seen this year. And it stars Gina Gershon and, and she plays the like ringleader of, of this performance troupe in Las Vegas. And she has a, a really commanding presence. So he, he just saw it and obviously loved it because I guess it was sexy women. Um, <laughs> and told the Wachowskis to cast Gina Gershon in the movie. And for a moment there, for I, I guess for one of the table reads, Gershon was playing a Violet and Tilly was playing Corky. They didn't really want to switch roles, mm. even when it became very obvious to everyone that they were just not suited for the roles that they were they wanted to play. <laughs> so the project was off for a little bit, but then both of them decided to, to that they would compromise and play the roles that <laughs> were, were better for them. What I wanted to say was both Showgirls and I think Bound made it 
very clear to me that both the Wachowskis and also a director like Paul Verhoeven really have thematic concerns related to sex and sexuality and really do a lot of work to sort of try to shoehorn them into mainstream Hollywood blockbusters. And I think both these sets of directors, I think, are very responsible for the reason why 90s and 80s action cinema in Hollywood have been regarded as very as very like sexy in a way i i guess mm. i'm not talking about the more like down the the line action flicks but the the more like r-rated sexploitation stuff i think it, it, it's it's sort of a extension of that but putting that into the genre world i think both wachowskis and paul verhoeven are responsible for that Maybe we should talk for Hoven sometime. Yeah, I think we might have to. Yeah, with Benedetta coming up this year. I have not seen a single Verhoeven as of this recording. Whoa. Hmm. I want to watch more Verhoeven. I <laughs> was sort of on a Verhoeven binge this year. So, yeah, I'm very happy to talk Verhoeven with y'all. Romare is to Ben as Verhoeven <laughs> is to Wilson. <laughs> You're just saying I had a really horny year, Eli. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of a shame. I feel like in recent years, sex and cinema has kind of like been, I don't know, a bit diffused. I mean, you still have Verhoeven making his films, making Benedetta. But I felt like in this period, you have a lot of people doing just sexploitation for sexploitation's sake. But then you have like really interesting people like <laughs> Verhoeven and the Wachowskis digging into sexuality and like making a point out of it, not just for the sake of getting eyeballs for the films. Yeah. They're all really trying to say something about how I think with The Matrix, or at least Reloaded, I think the, the really resounding thing was that sexuality is what makes us human and what sets us apart mm. from the robots. <laughs> and and with Verhoeven's work with Showgirls, I think it is sort of like the relationship between sex and power and mm. also Robocop is just like, oh, the body as a... Instrument of the state. Instrument of the state, yes. I think there's so much more to discuss and I'm, I'm really hoping that Resurrections really delves into that territory and doesn't really shy away even though I guess the general consensus of Hollywood now is that we're sort of like more sexless yeah and we are child friendly which i don't know so bullshitty <laughs> but here we are someone uh, alert film twitter bring sex back i guess i never really thought about the 90s as a very exciting time for cinema but i guess there was a lot of like interesting stuff happening in terms of like pushing getting things to be edgy and then having a few select directors like knowing what to do with that edginess to kind of make a point out of it to not just be for titillation yeah but for a thematic argument like if anything as much as film is more sexless now in a more generic like general mainstream hollywood sense but if there was sex in it then it would it's actually if anything more exploitative because it is kind of like oh here's an r-rated film like it's not really making a point of it it's just trying to say yeah this film is for adults mm -hmm. not for kids but that's that's not really useful like it's it's not saying anything about the elements it's putting in right and there's something that is less mature about that choice yeah yeah like with bound i think you could make an argument that there's partially like the sex stuff is meant to kind of market towards a kind of sexploitation genre kind of thing but i mean if you look at the the posters and the use of the rope and the tying up it's all like kind of a bit of a fetishistic kind of marketing right yeah it is but doing something where like the undercurrent message is still intelligent or interesting at least but i'm also like why not why can't we just make a, an action movie that's sexy because it is sexy as well like i <laughs> I, I don't see a reason why not right <laughs> what's a recent sexy action movie i cannot think of anything uh 
<laughs> Red notice. <laughs> oh, gross. My hypothesis is that you sort of have two modes of filmmaking in the 90s, right? You have the Wachowskis, you have Verhoeven making these really off-kilter, but very enjoyable and fresh takes on very long-standing genres. But you also have people like James Cameron, Steven Spielberg. Mm. And I, I feel like James Cameron is the, sort of like the main culprit of this. Doing Terminator, doing Titanic, which I guess is not not sexy, but I think it is very just classic filmmaking techniques and white man considerations of thematic, like what he wants to focus on and theme. And that sort of became more widely appealing and that sort of like won over what the next tide of American cinema was going to be. And mm. I think that's what we are sort of still caught in now, but just even more watered down with all the Marvel shit. Yeah, I mean, the problem with all that is just that they realize the money is with the teens and the kids rather than with the adults, Yeah, which is ironic because they don't have money. But like for some reason... That's where you can make the most dollars, right? If you market to kids and teens because you make something like, I don't know, Boss Baby 2 and that's somehow making money. <laughs> then you could green light a sequel because the kids maybe want to watch it twice and the parents, they have the money but they're forced to buy the tickets for that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, like, that means that, like when you watch Boss Baby with your kids, I'm just saying this because my boss made this comment about having to watch Boss Baby with his kids. Like, you have, let's say, for example, three kids that want to watch Boss Baby and then you add on to parents who don't want to watch boss baby but they have to be there <laughs> mm-hmm. it's marketing genius it's money this business yeah yeah so it's kind of i don't know it's just kind of sad like this is just kind of how it is with the business of film yeah yeah i've been thinking lately about how like in a sense netflix is good for films like this like it's good for adult cinema because it doesn't matter like people who can afford netflix are adults yeah you know what i mean and they're just watching what they want to watch but what is netflix doing for adult cinema in actuality in reality what is netflix doing for adults? i cannot get into that i have no idea who knows right who knows that's like a conversation for a different podcast altogether (laughs) yeah it is it really is cut to our Zack snyder's justice league episode (laughs) where the industry is going A lot of the information that I got from the director's side was this interview that Lana did at the Music Box Theater in Chicago. Uh, I think it was after a retrospective screening of Bound. One thing that she said in the interview that I thought was very interesting was how their mode or style of filmmaking had shifted post-original Matrix trilogy and how now their mode of filmmaking is less precise, as in like not storyboarding sequences anymore, but just sort of showing up on set and improvising. And they said a lot of their Netflix show Sense8. What they were doing was they were just showing up on set and improvising how to shoot stuff. And because they were traveling around the world, sometimes they didn't even like get to location scout in person and only saw photos of it and would just decide what they wanted to do on set uh, the day of. Hmm. Lana kept on talking about trying to strike a balance between a really calculated mode of filmmaking beforehand and the sort of organic chaos that they were trying to to cultivate with their more modern filmmaking. And I was wondering if because of this shift that has happened post these two movies that we've discussed, I was wondering if Matrix Resurrections is going to feel a lot different than these two, Mm -hmm. or it might be, it might be similar territory, but we'll just have to wait and see. 
but it's going to be, yeah, around a month from now that new Matrix is coming out. And I'm so excited. I would fully embrace a strange, idiosyncratic, unpredictable, and messy Matrix Resurrections over the kind of Matrix Resurrections that Ben predicted last week, <laughs> which is the Force Awakens Matrix Resurrections Oof. that retreads the original. Yeah, let's hope to God that has not. But I think with Lana's track record, because Lana took the helm of season two of Sense8 and when Lily was doing other projects. And I, I really do believe in her strength and her directorial voice as wanting to do something fresh with it and yeah. this not being just a, a cash grab for the actors and for the, the creators of The Matrix. It definitely doesn't feel that way. Yeah. I sure hope so. But if you got into this point in the episode, that, that means you've sort of got into to the end of the, the season and... I want to say thank you to all of you who are listening, who've joined us all season. I think we avoided a sophomore slump, which is what I was worried about going into the second season. <laughs> but I think we, we, we sort of one-upped ourselves. <laughs> mm. And fear not, I have word that we might be back. So yeah, it's, it's keep an eye out for us. Sincere thank you to you all for listening to us through this season. It's been tremendous fun. Thank you to the guests that we've had on this season. Russell Goldman, Andrew Ahn, Isabel Sandoval, and Thamai Lugudu. Wow, I can't believe we had those guests on this season. Yeah. Wild. yeah. Wow. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thinking back on all the directors that we talked about. And something that I feel especially proud of is that we have a growing community in our Discord. That feels really special, and it's a great place to talk about movies. And I also feel so thankful to you guys, Wilson and Ben. I don't know, we're also coming up on a year of having published this podcast. I find that insane. (laughs) That feels like a big accomplishment. That's really incredible. (laughs) Deep cut forever. Yeah, hopefully many more years to come. I I can see myself doing this till a very old age. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That sounds weird. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I'm just really grateful to be able to talk about movies with both of you because it helps me remember the movies and like think about (laughs) the things I learned from watching them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited for what we're going to do next season Mm -hmm. which is definitely happening and i can't wait to see what comes up and don't go too far from the subscriptions page because we will have some special episodes coming up soon about new releases from directors who we've covered on the podcast as well as our annual year in review yeah a new thing that we're going to try to do is cover Basically, our canon of filmmakers, we're going to just keep up with them and keep looking at the films they're coming up with and see how they're doing. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for this episode and this season of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. Keep up with Deep Cut on Letterboxd, as well as on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link to in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. Thank you, Justina. Thank you, Justina. (laughs) (laughs) Been killing it with the artwork all season long. Hell yeah. Yeah. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next next season. season. (laughs) Killed it. Killed it. Deep cut. (laughs)